I got ripped off. I got cheated. I got swindled. A few feelings that are more hurtful than recognizing that you just got cheated. You just got swindled. Now what happens is that normally it hurts so bad you won't get fooled again. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Nobody likes to get cheated. Nobody likes to get swindled. We've probably all been swindled or conned in some way. Those of us who think that we haven't are probably getting conned more than anybody, you know. Uh, We've all been swindled. We've all been cheated. We've all been ripped off. But once we see the trick... Once we understand who the cheater is and who the swindler is and and who the con artist is, we see them for who they are and they can't trick us anymore. They can't fool us anymore. They can't cheat us anymore. Today, I want you to see who the world is, what the world is, what is the mystery of Babylon, that is the world that is in rebellion against God, that is deceptive and seductive, that swindles us and cheats us, you'll see it for what it is, and you'll find your satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Today we're going to start in Revelation chapter 16, Revelation chapter 16, Revelation chapter 16, starting in verse 17, be here for just a few verses. What we see first is the great earthquake. The great earthquake. Revelation chapter 16, verses 17 through 21. The great earthquake. Revelation chapter 16, starting in verse 17. So it says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe. Finishing up this series of judgments, they're typically called the bold judgments in in verse 17. And this seventh angel pours out this seventh bowl, and then there's just simply a loud voice from the temple, from the presence of God, that says, It is done. It's finished. Chapter 15 said these seven bold plagues, these seven bold judgments, they are the last ones. This is God's final judgment on those who, the way the the book of Revelation calls it, earth dwellers. The final judgment on earth dwellers. That is, those who have rejected Jesus Christ, those who have uh, bowed down to idols, uh, who do not believe in God, who have not trusted in God or worshiped God. This is the final judgment. And so, verse 17 says, It is done. It is completed. It is finished. And then there's verse 18. All right? So verse 18. Verse 18, there there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. So what happens in the book of Revelation is everything is not strictly chronological. It's not... This comes after this, this comes after this. Instead, things typically go in cycles. And so, say, for instance, in uh, chapter 4, there, were, there was thunder and an earthquake and rumblings and, 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 and these kinds of same kinds of descriptions. And that was a prelude to something that was going to come uh, next. And then in chapter 8, there was the same thing. In chapter 11, there's the same thing. And again, in chapter 16, we're, we're coming up. There's, there's more to say. Uh, not to mention the fact that we're in chapter 16 and there are 20 two chapters. So we know we got some more to say. Uh, what, what John is doing is he's going back and these are the final judgments. This is the final judgment on uh, those who reject Jesus Christ and, and do not worship God. Uh, but he is going back over this, this same period of time and he's expanding on these ideas. 
Uh, and so we're going to keep we're going to keep looking and, and seeing more and more. And, and in a way, what we saw in chapter uh, twelve and thirteen. We saw the introduction of the dragon who is Satan, uh, and we saw the introduction of the beast, these beastly kingdoms or states or, or governments, and you saw the, the second beast, which is also called the false prophet, or, or uh, we'll, we'll see her, I think, described as the great prostitute here in a minute. Uh, we we kind of see those emerge, uh, and then we see them taken off the scene in reverse order, so that we look at uh, Babylon, who is the great prostitute, and we look at the, the destruction of the beast, and then we see what happens to Satan, and then we come to eternity with God. So you kind of start to move through. There's more to say, uh, but one of the things that you see in verse 18 is that there is a great earthquake. An earthquake like there's never been an earthquake ever again. And it reminds us of a couple of different passages from other places in the Bible. Remember Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, Everybody who builds on my words and does the will of God is like a person who builds on the rock. And when the, when the floods come, their house stands. And I think that Jesus, when he's talking about the floods come, he's not just talking about uh, the, 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 the ordinary tribulations and difficulties of life, though that's true. But he's really talking about final judgment. He's talking about when judgment comes... That house is going to be built. The one who builds on Jesus Christ and his words will stand. But the one who does not build on Jesus Christ and his words will be wiped away. There'll be a shaking. And when there's the shaking, there will be some things that cannot be shaken. And there will be some things that can be shaken. And all the things that can be shaken will be shaken out. Same thing in Hebrews 12. Jesus says, uh, God says in Hebrews 12, I'm going to shake the world one more time. There's going to be a great shaking of the world, and there are going to be some things that last, and everything else is going to be shaken out. Well, this great earthquake, like there's never been an earthquake before, is this great shaking of the whole created order, and there is the shaking out of everything that can be shaken and everything that cannot be shaken that is built on Jesus Christ in his kingdom, on his word, will stand that shaking. Now, you look in the next verse there, verse 19. The great city, I think we'll see that that's, that is Babylon. The great city was split into three parts. We're going to see two cities. Uh, there are two uh, peoples or, or two kinds of people in the book of Revelation. Uh, those who are with God and those who are not. There are two destinies, those who are destined for salvation and those who are destined for judgment. There are also two cities. There's the city of Babylon and there's the city, the new city of Jerusalem. And they are opposed to one another. Here you see the great city. The great city is split into three parts, broken up. Um, all the cities of the nations fell. In the Old Testament, when the prophets are pronouncing judgment on a people, often they will use the, the cities uh, as a stand-in for all the people. So they'll say, uh, Gaza, because uh, they're talking about uh, the Philistines, or they'll say Babylon because they're talking about the Babylonians, or they'll say Damascus because they're talking about the Syrians, or Basra because they're talking about the Edomites. But all these cities, all these cities that are against God's people, that are against God, that are not bowing down to God, when there comes this great shaking, they fall. They fall to the ground. They crumble. And it says, God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Babylon is a city uh, in the Old Testament and uh, it begins, the story of Babylon really begins in Genesis 11 where you have the people gather together instead of subduing and having dominion on the earth the way that God had intended them to, to do. God intended humanity to have dominion over the earth but it was for the glory of God to make a name for God. The people who gathered at Babel, they subdued the earth. They came up with new technologies and they built a tower, but they did it for their own name. They said, hey, people will look at us and we will be gathered together and, and, and people will speak about how great we are. Well, God came down to their, their puny little tower and scattered them in judgment. Later on uh, in the book of Daniel, pays the most attention to, to Babylon, uh, is Babylon where Daniel and his friends are enticed to eat the king's food. Or it's Babylon that tries to force uh, God's people to bow down to a golden image. Or it's, it's Babylon uh, that uh, takes all these golden vessels from the temple of God and begins to use them in pagan worship or pagan revelry. 
It's Babylon. Babylon is this great city that is opposed to God. God's going to remember. Babylon is really kind of the stand-in for a concept that, that uh, John uses a lot in other places. We, we often talk as Christians about the world, which is not, when we're saying that, we're not just talking about the created order. We're talking about the world, uh, the world system in, that is in rebellion against God. And so God is going to remember the world. God is going to remember Babylon the Great. He's going to remember this great city that lifts itself up against God, that raises itself up in, in pride. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is walking on his rooftop. And he looks out at, at the city of Babylon and says, look at how great this is. And then God strikes him with madness for seven years. Because God rules over all things. God has dominion. God is sovereign over all things. He is the ruler over all things. God is going to remember. And all the things that Babylon has done that, that are wrong, God is going to remember that. And he's going to pour out the, make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Verse 20, every island fled away. Now, lots of times islands, uh, they, they trust in the waters that surround them, particularly in the ancient world before we have aircraft, before we have bombers and those kind of things. They trust in, in the surrounding water to protect them. There were places like Tyre and Sidon that had these kinds of things or places like Crete that, that they were protected by their waters. But when the great shaking comes, you can't trust in the waters. You can only trust in God. You look at the, every mountain, uh, there are no mountains found. Later on, we're going to see Babylon compared to mount, a mountain or the beasts compared to a, a mountains. It's because they, they seem high. They're high and lifted up. They're, in a sense, proud, and they seem immovable. It seems like nothing, nothing is going to move these mountains until the great shaking comes, and there are no more mountains. Is there, is there anything that God can't shake? Is there anyone who is built on God who can be shaken? There's not. The point is, build your life on God. Build your life on Jesus Christ. Build your life on Christ's words. So that when the great shaking comes, when the great earthquake comes, the last shaking of all things, you don't end up getting shaken out. Last thing you see in, in verse 21 are these great hailstones that fall from heaven and the people, the people, the earth dwellers, the, those who are still in rebellion against God, they, they curse God. One of the things that you see in these bold judgments is that there's no repentance. These are, these are not judgments that, that lead to repentance. The, the time of, of, say, warnings, that, that's, that's past. This is This is judgment. There's no repenting at this point. Man, today, today repent before the great shaking comes. The, the point about building your house on the rock is you don't know when the flood comes. You don't know when the earthquake comes. You don't know when the great shaking comes. You build your house on the rock today so that when it comes, you'll be safe. You'll be saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. Next we see... The great prostitute. The great prostitute. We'll pick up in chapter 17. Let's read verses 1 through 6. The great prostitute. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations." And I saw that the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. 
kind of used uh, the end of chapter 16 as kind of the segue into looking at the, the great prostitute. And you can kind of, I hope you see why. You look there at that first verse in chapter 17. It's, the, it's one of those angels. It's one of those angels that poured out the, the bowls of judgment that is sort of John's tour guide through this vision. He's showing him the vision. Uh, and you can see the connection between Babylon in, in chapter 16 and Babylon that's being spoken about here. Well, what the, what the angel does is he, he brings uh, John to see this great prostitute who is seated on many waters. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her. And by that, it doesn't simply mean that they fornicated with her or they, they committed sexual immorality. It means that they, 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 were, they were drinking deeply of her, all of her abominations. It's not limited to just sexual immorality. It's every form of, of greed and godlessness and wickedness and, and vile and vile, filthy evil of every kind. They, they drank deeply of that. And this, 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 uh, the, the kings of the earth are a part of this worldly system. There's a lot of difficult symbolism in chapter 17, but the overall point is fairly easy to understand. This is what we would call the world. And the world is enticing. The world is alluring. The world is seductive. You see how this woman is dressed. She's uh, seated on the beast, which I think is the same beast as, as chapter 13, this uh, this symbol of the beastly nations or the beastly kingdoms of the earth or beastly governments of the earth. They kind of had this union. So in chapter 13, it was the, the first beast and the second beast came and gave support to the first beast, caused people to bow down to the beast. Uh, here there is, it, it's actually the, the beastly kingdoms that are carrying the world. There's kind of this union between beastly governments or beastly kingdoms and and uh, the seductions of the world, and when you combine them, is this whole representation of the world and its, its opposition to God and its union for, to make a, a whole godless society. Well, she's being carried, and you see how she is uh, dressed. She is dressed in a very alluring kind of way. She's dressed in purple and scarlet. It's be very expensive garments. She's adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She's wearing a lot of, a lot of jewelry, a lot of, a lot of trinkets. Uh, she is, she's dressed up in, in order to, to entice, to seduce. And she's got this golden cup in her hands. Come, come to her pleasures. Come to her enjoyments. Come, come to all these good things that the world holds out to you. But what's in the cup? Sexual immorality and all the abominations that she gives for the world to drink, for, for those earth dwellers to drink. She holds them out to them. All the greed and all the malice and all the violence and all the sexual immorality that is present in the world, they, they, it comes from her. Says, says she is the one who is she holds her hand a cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. She holds them out for them to drink and to be made drunk, to be inebriated, to be, to be overcome by her seductions and her allurements and her enticements. And then she has something written on her forehead. Babylon the Great. She's the, she's the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Everything comes from this worldly system. But notice that word mystery. Sometimes when we read the word mystery, we think it's like a puzzle that we're trying to figure out. But the way the word mystery, especially used in the New Testament, is not something that we're trying to figure out anymore. It's actually something that Christians already understand. It's an open secret. It's like sometimes... Uh, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, we were reading, uh, some people in our household were reading like Agatha Christie novels. My mom always used, used to read Agatha Christie novels. There's one thing about reading those little, those little mystery novels. You can't really read them twice. Once you know the ending, there's no use reading it anymore. But for Christians, we kind of know the end of the story. We know, we know the, the secret. The mystery is not a mystery to us. It's, not a, it's an open secret. We know the key to the riddle. This is Babylon. Let me try and explain what, that, what I mean by that. He's saying, 
the, the angel is saying, John, look at this beautiful woman. This woman who is wearing these beautiful clothes and she has all these riches and all this wealth and, and she's so enticing and so, so, uh, so alluring. Do you know who she is? She's just Babylon. She's just the one who tried to entice those young men and Daniel. She's the one who tried to force them to bow down to golden idols. She's the one, someplace like Proverbs 7, who is bringing people to their destruction. Do you, listen, you know who she is. You know who she is. If we're Christians, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we ought to know what the world is. We ought to be able to, we, we ought to, be able to see through all of the, uh, the fancy clothes and all of the, the, the fancy trinkets, the, the, the costly, the costly uh, gold necklaces and all the pearls. We ought to be able to see through that. We ought to be able to see all the, all the holding out of enjoyments. We ought to be able to see it for what it is. It's nothing but, but something to get you drunk and lead you to destruction. It's nothing but to destroy your life. The, the offerings of the, the world, the pleasures of the world, the lust of the world. They are enticing you. They are seducing you. Know what they are. They'll kill you. They'll destroy you. Don't, don't miss out. Don't, don't, get, don't get taken in. The woman, you say in verse 6, the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints. The blood of, probably the better translation in verse 6 is not martyrs, but the witnesses to Jesus. Those who bore witness, all those who bear witness to Jesus Christ. What's that saying? You, you know who she is? She's the one who wants to kill the church. She's one, the one who wants to destroy those who believe in Jesus Christ. And you can't be friends with her. James says, you can't be friends with God and friends with the world. John says, you can't love God and love the world. The same way there are only two peoples and two destinies, there are two cities and there are two women, there are also, there are also only two affections, there are only two loves, the love of God or the love of the world. There's no in-between. John even kind of lets, uh, lets on how, how seductive she is. And there are a couple of things, a couple of things John kind of does here to kind of give an idea of, of what it looks like and, and uh, what this, uh, how, how difficult it can be sometimes. He says he marveled at her. Probably has the idea of like he, man, if he was not being protected, if he was not being kept, if he was not in a safe place, man, it'd be easy to get taken up in her. It's, it is easy to be taken over by the world, to be inebriated by the world, to get drunk on the world. You have to be on guard. You have to be sober-minded. You have to be watchful. See through her trickery and her deceptions, her evil. Don't get drunk on the world. See her for what she is, the one who leads to your destruction, the one who destroys the saints. We've seen the, this introduction to, the, to these prostitutes. Uh, to the prostitute, you can see there in verse 3, he is protected in the wilderness. The wilderness, the, the imagery in, of the wilderness in the book of Revelation is that, that the wilderness is a place of testing and trial. It's also a place of protection. We have already seen the wilderness. We saw the wilderness in chapter 12 where there is there, there, this, this other woman who pictures God's people. And it's through God's people, through the Old Testament people of God, through Israel, that the Messiah comes. But she's protected there. She is nourished there. The same way, for instance, in the Old Testament, Elijah was three and a half years in the wilderness, and God fed him with ravens. Ravens brought him food, and he drank from a stream that nobody knew where it came from. God took care of him. God takes care of the church. God keeps John from falling for her deceptions. Who keeps us? Who holds us? 
Who holds us so that we cannot be snatched out of his hand? Jesus Christ holds us. God holds us. God keeps us and protects us and nourishes us in the wilderness. He, he keeps us and protects us so that we do not fall for her designs, for her trickery. Well, next we see the great war. The great war. Pick up in verse 7. The angel, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life and the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has yet not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. You look at how the angel responds to John's marveling. He says, why do you marvel? Like, you know who she is. I'll tell you the mystery. I'll tell you also who the beast is. This beast has seven heads and ten ten horns. That identifies him as the same beast in uh, chapter uh, 13. The beast that is, are these uh, beastly kingdoms that arise at different times. They, They come up and they fall and they come up and they fall. But the beast always comes back. This beast, look in verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. The beast mimics Jesus Christ. He's the one who, Jesus Christ is the one who was and is and is to come and the one who was raised to live eternally. But John is saying about this beast, he was and then he is not. The beast seems to fall and then he is again and people marvel at this. You can see that the the earth dwellers, those who are are taken up with him and worshipers of him and, and don't see him for what he is, Don't see that he's just a man, that he's not God. They bow down to him because they they see that his power always comes back. And yet he's going to destruction. Jesus Christ was and is and is to come and then lives forever. The beast was and is not and is again, but it goes to destruction. Don't. Don't trust in any false messiahs. Jesus said that there would be false Christ, false messiahs. I don't think he was talking about particular men who would pretend to be messiah. I think he was talking about governments or kingdoms or kings that would pretend to be rulers over all things, uh, pretend to a power that only Jesus Christ has. You look at this, this beast. You look at verse 9. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. We're pretty uncomfortable with the idea of uh, election and predestination. If there's anything we're more uncomfortable with, it is to talk about reprobation. But there's essentially a definition of reprobation right there. Their names are not written in the book of life. Now, it might, it's a difficult thing. It's not a difficult thing to understand. God, God chooses those who will go to salvation. Their names are written in the book of life from, from before the foundation of the world. And then there are those who are not written. It's not difficult to understand. It's difficult to swallow. But this is what I want you to understand. This is the, the application that comes from it. When you look at these earth dwellers, wouldn't it be easy to say, look at how foolish they are that they bow down to the beast. Look, look, look at those fools. Look, I'm glad I'm not like them. Praise God I'm not like the tax collectors and the prostitutes 
that I'm not, that I tithe and, and, and give of, of my goods and that I believe in Jesus Christ. I, thank God for that. And, 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 and to speak very self-righteously and look self-righteously against those who bow down to the beast. Those who worship idols. Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be easy to do that? And yet, what we're supposed to say is that the way that we're supposed to think is that if it were not for God, I'd be just like them. May seem very di- distant to us. May seem difficult for us to understand. But you have to understand that pride is a very tenacious weed in the heart of mankind. And there is only one tool that will dig it up in some cases. That's the teaching from the scriptures that God is the one. God is the reason why you're saved. God is primary. God is fundamental. God is ultimate. The reason why you're not an earth dweller, the reason why you don't go to destruction is because God saved you. We are we are intended to be sober-minded. There's no way to excuse our, our, our um, inability or unwillingness to, to be vigilant. And yet, when we look at what is the big distinction between those who belong to Christ and those who belong to the world, it's, it's God. God saved us. We find out about who the beast is, calls for a mind of wisdom, says seven heads, seven mountains, seven kings. This is who the beast is. Now, this would obviously, uh, as a lot of people propose, it's going to remind people of Rome, which was built on seven hills. Um, But that's not the fullness of the understanding. Uh, Rome probably was, in a sense, the beast. That's the way Daniel portrays it in Daniel 7. That's the way John, I think, is speaking about it. He's, he's explaining to the people who are living at that time. Rome is, is a beast who sheds the blood of the saints, who tries to force people to bow down to Caesar and, and make ritual sacrifices to, to Caesar. But it doesn't exhaust the meaning. That's not normally the way that uh, the book of Revelation uses numbers, the way that it uses, say, the word no, number 7. Instead, in fact, it says, this is who the beast is. It's seven heads and seven mountains and seven kings. Uh, way back in chapter 11, it was, this is, it's talking about the same city. It says, this is Egypt and this is Sodom and this is the place where Jesus was crucified. Because they are all, they, they are all things, uh, ways of talking about bringing up symbolism from the Old Testament that all bring it all together and say one thing. So when you look at the seven heads, you think about the, the complete and total authority that this beast has. When you think about the seven mountains, you think about the, the great pride that this beast has. When you think about the seven kings, you think about the, the, the great rule, the royalty, the power that these, this beast has. That's the way we're supposed to think about it. Think about all these things together, the, the heads and the mountains and, the, and, the, and the, um, the kings. They're all this symbol of authority and rule and pride and arrogance. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. Think of Pharaoh. Think of all these that lifted themselves up in the past until God cut them down. This is that beast. And like he's already said, this beast is seven kings. You look, look at verse 10. Remember, the, remember the, the way that John has already talked about. He was and is not and is to come. Now then apply that to these seven kings. Now some people have tried to come up with these seven kings, but they can never number them rightly. You know, they never can decide which king to start with. Uh, it's better to think of them symbolically, the way, that, the way that Revelation normally uses numbers. So you have these five kings who symbolize kingdoms that have risen and fallen already. So Egypt came and went, and Babylon came and went, and, and all these kingdoms of the past have come, and they have been beastly in their time, and then they have fallen. The, the beast was, but then it is not. Now then John says this sixth this six beast or sixth kingdom, there's one that is, is here. There I think he's talking about Rome. He's pointing to Rome and saying, look at the beast. 
Look at the beast who tries to force us to, to burn incense to the Caesar. Look at the beast who tries to force us to worship idols. Look at the beast who sheds the blood of, of God's people. And then there's, a, there's a still a, a beast who's still to come. Rome falls. That's not the end of beastly kingdoms. Beastly kingdoms keep coming. So, so you have this pattern of all throughout history. There are these beastly kingdoms. And then there's the beastly kingdom that's there in John's time. And there are going to be more beastly kingdoms that come in the future. And then, what does John do? Man, he's, he's, he's really messing with our heads a little bit. He says, the, there's an eighth one. And he belongs to the seven. All that means is that he's, he is of the same nature and character as the other seven. He's like Egypt. He's like Nebuchadnezzar. He's like Rome. This one comes only at the end, and it goes to destruction. Look at verse, look at verse 11. As for the beast that was and is not is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And then there are ten horns that symbolize ten kings. I don't think that, say, the way people thought sometimes in the 80s that this was the European Union or something like that. I think it's more symbolic than that, the way Revelation normally uses numbers as symbols. It says these are ten kings. That is a, that, the idea that it carries is the complete number of all the kings of the earth, and they give their authority to this final beast who is going to have, how long is he going to, he's not going to have it for a little while. He's going to have it for one hour, a, a very short period of time. So let me just summarize. There are, there are kingdoms that have been and, and come and, and gone before the coming of Jesus Christ. There's, there's the, the beast that is in the time of Jesus Christ. And in John's time, there are more beasts to come. And then there is one final beast who goes to destruction. The point is, God is going to deal with the beast. God is going to deal with all beastly kingdoms, all pretenders to Christ's power and authority. And go from there to verse 13. They're of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. And they make war on the Lamb. This is the final war. Uh, what chapter 16 called Armageddon. That is, on the Mount of Megiddo. This, this ancient symbolic place of where all the great battles of Israel's history were fought. This is the great battle. Where all the kings, all the nations that rage against Jesus Christ, they all come together and they all, they all unite to throw down Jesus Christ, to throw down the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, the Lamb who rose again, the Lamb who is worthy to break the seals, the worthy to carry out God's plan of history. He's worthy. They come to make war and... This is not like a really extensive military history. It just says, the Lamb will conquer them. How long does the last day take? They all come together. They all come together against the Lamb, and the Lamb conquers them. That's it. It's like, go back to the seventh bowl. It is done. It's going to be done. The Lamb is going to just conquer them. They're the most powerful, immovable, arrogant people or kingdoms or powers in all the world. And they all gather together against Jesus Christ and then the Lamb conquers them. Why would you not trust the Lamb? Trust the Lamb. Don't fear these kingdoms. Don't fear the immovable, arrogant powers of this world. Trust Jesus Christ. Why does he conquer them? He is Lord of lords and King of kings. That's, not a, that's, that's, that's almost like a non sequitur, but it's just simply saying there are no kings higher than him. They pretended to be king. They're not. Jesus Christ is king. They pretended to be lords. They caused the people to bow down to them and they accepted other people's worship and they're not God. They're not king. They're not Lord. Jesus Christ is king of kings and Lord of lords. When the final battle, when the dust settles, when it all shakes out, Jesus Christ will stand on the field. He will stand as the conqueror. Because he is king of kings and lord of lords. Now there are those 
who are with him. And look at, look at how they are identified. Those with him are called and chosen and faithful. I want to key in on those words for a minute. A lot of times when we talk about calling, uh, we talk about it as in maybe like a, like a vocational calling, called to do a certain job, we especially talk that way. Sometimes we're talking about pastors and missionaries, but that's not the normal way that the Bible uses the word called. Normally, especially the New Testament, when it talks about uh, being called, it only talks about what's called, what we sometimes call effectual calling. That is, God calls us and brings us to himself. The same way that God spoke in the beginning, he said, let there be light, and there was light. He calls people to himself, and his word creates the reality that it speaks. So God, when he calls us, he overcomes our unwillingness to come to him. He persuades us. He overcomes our hardness. He overcomes our deadness, and he brings us to himself. And the idea of calling identifies as those of us who are called to belong to God. We belong to God. We are his people. Like we memorized just a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 100, we are the sheep of his pasture. He's watching over us. He is, we are his people. This is our identity. This is who we are. If we are believing in Jesus Christ, we have been called to belong to God. Look at that next word, that next word that shapes our identity, who we are. We are chosen. And this highlights God's grace. God, when we, when we think of why we are saved, we don't look at anything in us. We don't look to ourselves and say, it's really because of my works. We certainly don't say that. We don't even say that it's because of my good judgment and my good decisions. We say there's because God chose us. It takes a big hammer to hammer that in, to hammer humility into us. Sometimes the fact that God chooses us to salvation is just the hammer that it takes to humble us before God. To make it where we're not looking out at other people and saying, aren't I good that I had so much better judgment than they did, that I make such, so many better decisions than they do? No, we, we are humbled because God chose us and God saved us. Our identity is that we are called by God. We are called to belong to God. Our identity is that we are chosen by God. Humbles us. The last word there is we are faithful. That's who we are. Those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, we are the faithful. Why are we the faithful? You can't separate our faithfulness from being called and chosen. They're inseparable. And yet, we must be faithful. This is a, Revelation is a whole book that is intended to motivate us and sustain us and make us be faithful. Hold fast to Christ. Endure. Persevere. Be faithful. Don't bow down. That's what the whole book's about. The whole book is speaking to human beings with, with human desires and human wills and, and human affections and saying to us, be faithful. Don't, don't go with the seductress. Don't believe. Don't bow down to the beast. Don't, don't, get, don't compromise. Don't do any of those things. Be faithful. Is this hard to understand? Is it a paradox? Is it incomprehensible? Maybe, probably. It is our identity, though. It is, it is who we are in Jesus Christ. It is who we must understand ourselves to be. We are called to belong to God. We are chosen by God's grace. And we must be faithful to the end. Last thing I want to finish this section with is that it is about the Lamb. The Lamb is the one who conquers. The Lamb is the Lamb who was slain. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ 
went into the desert, this place of trial and testing, and he faced down Satan, and he believed God's word. He spoke God's word, and he defeated Satan. Jesus Christ, he stood before Pilate, beastly Pilate. He stood before the Sanhedrin, the beastly Sanhedrin, and he made the good confession He stood his ground. He did not bow down. He did not waver. He went to the cross. He was obedient to the point of death. He shed his blood for our sins. The lamb died for us. If you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are the called. If you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are the chosen. If you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are the faithful. Keep on believing in him. Keep being faithful to him. The lamb, Jesus Christ, died for our sins so that we would have eternal life with him. Last section here. Finally, we see the great exposure. Sorry, in verse 15, says, The angel said to me, The waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Uh, verse 15, angel simply says, you see all those waters? They're all the peoples, all the nations, all the multitudes, all the languages. Again, the, the, the prostitute mimics Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has ransomed people from every tribe and people and language and nation. Here is the prostitute, the world that has, has sway over all the nations. The ten horns, these are those ten kings that gave their authority to the beast. And the beast and the kings all gang up on the, on the world, all gang up on the prostitute. And they strip her and they expose her and they beat her and they devour her and they burn her. Why? Who controls the hearts of kings? The book of Proverbs says God does. God directs the hearts of kings. Who, who declares the end from the beginning? Who can hold back? Who can hold back God's hand? God puts it in their heart, and they, they, in God's plan, there is this great division, this great, this great destruction of the prostitute. This is the great prostitute. The woman that you saw is the great dominion. This is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. It's the, the world that has sway. It's, it's, it's the beast or the, or the, the prostitute or the, the, the seducer who has sway over all the world that is in rebellion against God. Last thing I want you to see about this prostitute is that ultimately her inability to satisfy will be exposed. John says something in, in, John, in 1 John where he says, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the, the pride of life, they're all part of the world, and the world is passing away. Think about that. Like, it's on its way out. Like, it doesn't just come to an end at the end. It's, it's already on its way out. The world is never going to satisfy you. I think a lot of people are reluctant to come to Jesus Christ because they think giving up the world is giving up the good life. I'm gonna, you look, look, at, look at chapter 17 and you, you see this woman and you think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up all those good things. I'm going to give up all the, all the, all the that great, she, she's, she's so beautiful. She's, she's dressed so well and she has all that wealth. I'm going to give up all that to go follow Jesus Christ. I think they're giving up the good life. The reality is, is the world is already on its way out. 
the world is not satisfying you as it is. It's not going to satisfy you. It's not going to last. The pleasures of this world are ending. They are already ending. Some people just can't give them up because they can't imagine anything else, even though they are in bondage to their own desires. When you give up the pleasures of the world for the treasure of Jesus Christ, you are not giving up the good life. You are giving up temporary pleasures that do not satisfy for the one great satisfier of the soul, Jesus Christ. One day, the world is going to be exposed for its emptiness. And then there will be the one who stands in splendor, Jesus Christ. Abandon the world. Run away from the world. Flee the prostitute. Come to Jesus Christ. One day, the world is all going to be shaken. And only those who are built on Jesus Christ will last. One day there's going to be a great war and Jesus is going to be, Christ is going to be the last one standing. One day the world is going to be stripped of all of its glory. And the only hope for joy in eternity is hoping and trusting in Jesus Christ. Trust Jesus Christ. We pray for us. Father, uh, grant that we would uh, see things the way that they really are. That we would not be distracted by power or wealth or beauty. Uh, we, would not be, uh, we would not be distracted or seduced by any of the ways that Satan uh, mimics your glory and mimics your beauty, corrupting it and destroying it. Please grant that we would see things the way that they are. That we would see that the world is evil. And that the beast is just a man. The only one who can truly rule is Christ. And the only one who can truly satisfy is Christ. Please grant that we would find our satisfaction in Jesus Christ. That he would be our Lord. We would submit to him and trust in him. We will be faithful as those who have been called by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.